0: Hello, and welcome to Scream Scene, the horror movie podcast where we watch every horror movie ever made in chronological order, and then rank them from best to worst. My name is Sarah. And I'm Ben. Thank you for listening to us today.
1: How are you doing today, Sarah?
0: Doing pretty good i got a new job.
1: <laughs> yeah, that is true. Yeah. Yeah, leaving the radio station and on to new exciting, exciting things. things. Yeah.
0: yeah. Uh, everything's fine with the radio station. My contract just ended.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, but yeah, super stoked. What about you?
1: I'm doing pretty well. The radio show i had been writing for ended its season, so I don't really have a gig right now. If and when they come back for a third season, I might have more episodes in it then. Till then, I'm just kind of looking for new opportunities.
0: If listeners are looking for new opportunities, boy, do we have a page for you!
1: (laughs) Yeah, uh, the Scream Scene Patreon page has been up for a few weeks now, and we're pretty excited about it. The show doesn't cost us, like, a ton of money to produce, but it does cost us some money and some time to produce, and we've been doing it at a loss so far. A loss
0: um, of blood, sweat, and tears. And
1: money. If you'd like to see the show continue so that we can achieve our goal somehow of watching every horror movie ever made and ranking them from best to worst, you can support us by going to patreon.com slash screamscenepodcast. Patrons will get access to bonus audio at certain tiers, as well as at our highest tier bespoke horror fiction written by yours truly. and Does we're, that
0: mean you speak it?
1: No, that means it's like exclusive. Oh. Like written for our patrons. And uh, we're hoping to make it uh, eventually to our first goal, which is our $150 goal, at which point we'd like to start recording monthly horror adjacent specials, uh, talking about movies like Clue or The Mummy or What We Do in the Shadows, (laughs) movies that are like horror but not. The 90s Mummy to be clear. Yeah. (laughs) Although we might do that Tom Cruise one eventually too. Oh God. All this being said, if you would like to become a patron of ours, you'll get to join the ranks of those who have already done so and it's the time of the show where we're going to thank our very first supporters on Patreon so our thanks go out this week to Ty Stafford. Thanks, Ty. Matt Smith. Thank you, Matt. And William Jacobs. Thank you, William. Will. Bill. Thank you. <laughs> and if you'd like to join them, just head over to patreon.com slash screamscenepodcast. What are we watching this week, Ben? This week, we are watching The Black Room from 1935, starring Boris Karloff.
0: Now, how are we going to be able to see it if it's in a black room? Do they invent new kinds of film?
1: It's not necessarily a dark room. It might just be colored black. Sure. This film is Columbia Pictures' entry into the sort of brief horror resurgence of 1935. We've seen two movies from Columbia in the past, uh, Night of Terror and Black Moon, neither of which impressed us a whole heck of a lot.
0: No, Night of Terror is at the bottom of the list, isn't it?
1: No, that's House of Mystery. Oh. Now, Columbia had for a long time been kind of a poorer studio, but by 1935 they were on a bit of an upswing because their film It Happened One Night had swept the Oscars for films from 1934. They were getting more money, bigger budgets, a little bit more successful. That being said, they were still one of the minor studios, typically less money than Universal or, you know, obviously your MGMs or your Paramounts. But the Black Room was kind of a minor coup for them as far as a horror production went because they secured Boris Karloff as a star uh, straight from his cutting ties with Universal following the flop of The Raven. Mm Mm-hmm. Unlike the other offerings we've seen in 1935 so far, The Black Room is not a sequel, remake, or adaptation. Uh, it is an original story. Um, to direct this film, we've got Roy William Neal, who you may remember because he directed Black Moon for Columbia uh, a year ago. That bodes well. It makes sense from the point of view of the studio of like, oh, we made a horror movie last year, we're going to make another one this year, we'll just get the same guy to do it. You know, Karloff at this point in his career, this is kind of a turning point because having cut ties with Universal and moving to Columbia to do this film, really for Karloff was part of admitting that he was a horror actor, right? That, you know, he'd been trying during the time he was doing horror at Universal to also do other parts in other genres with other studios, but he's kind of been typecast at this point. And the fall in favor of the horror genre coincides with a fall in favor for him now, too. You know, so Columbia's not Poverty Row or anything. It's still a studio, but it's a minor studio. So it is a bit of a step down in prestige for Karloff, even if it means getting out from under the potential mismanagement he felt was going on at Universal. Mm -hmm. Starring opposite Karloff in this film is Marion Marsh, who was just 21 years old when she appeared in this film. She was born Violet Ethelred Krauth to a German father and French mother in Trinidad in 1913. Uh, She first started acting on stage at age 15 under the name Marilyn Morgan, and in 1931 she was signed to Warner Brothers and her name was changed to Marion Marsh. Her big break was starring in the lead role of Trilby in 1931's Svengali opposite John Barrymore. Svengali
0: is one of those horror-adjacent films.
1: Yeah, it sometimes gets lumped in as a horror film, but it's just as much of, like, a romantic drama and a comedy as well. hmm She starred in six more films for Warner Brothers over the next year before leaving to go work in Europe for two years, appearing in British and German films. Marsh returned to the U.S. in 1935 and signed a new contract with Columbia of which The Black Room was the first film under that new contract. Okay, so she's wanting to prove herself here. Yeah, she's been away from Hollywood for a while, doing these films in Europe, so she's back, and, you know... Ready
0: for action. Yeah,
1: exactly. An actress in a minor role in the cast of this film, but with kind of an interesting history, is Catherine DeMille. She was born Catherine Lester in 1911 in Vancouver, British Columbia but she was orphaned after her father died in the Battle of Vimy Ridge in World War I, and her mother died of tuberculosis. So she was adopted at age 11 by movie mogul Cecil B. DeMille of immense Hollywood fame, you know, did all these epic biblical films through the 20s and the 30s and the 40s and the 50s, Um, you know, I'm ready for my close-up, Mr. DeMille, you know, the big sort of spectacle picture director of the Golden Age.
0: How does a Canadian orphan get adopted by an American
1: Hollywood mogul? Yeah, I don't know, right? But that's what happened. So she became Catherine DeMille. She started acting on stage and screen in 1930, and The Black Room was her eighth film. She never really progressed much beyond minor roles, uh, but she continued acting on and off uh, while raising her children with her husband, Anthony Quinn, uh, another very famous actor. Um, She married Quinn in 1937 uh, and then divorced him in 1965 due to his numerous infidelities. Mm. Finally, uh, The Black Room reunites us with an old favorite of ours. It's the return of Edward Van Sloan. We last saw him in 1932's The Mummy, and of course also enjoyed his performances in Dracula and Frankenstein. He had appeared in two films since then, one in 1933 and one in 1934, uh, both of which were dramas. uh, So this is kind of his return to horror. The Black Room was mildly successful upon release on July 15th, 1935. Uh, winning acceptance from audiences, and even praise from critics. Wow. Graham Greene, the famous British novelist and screenwriter uh, who would go on to write the screenplay for The Third Man, he gave a glowing review of the film uh, in a magazine article, and today it is generally considered Columbia's best horror effort of the 1930s.
0: Okay, I'm really surprised, because as you've said... The horror genre is really going downhill here. Yeah, and now we have this film that is getting lots of praise. But I mean, Graham Greene, you know, he writes this film noir classic. Mm-hmm. So maybe this film will work more as like a connector from horror, German expressionism to film noir more than as a horror film, but I don't know.
1: Yeah, we'll have to see. Green also wrote, you know, he wrote thrillers. He wrote a lot of stuff that had, like, a lot of Catholic morality as well. But it's interesting to see, like, a a well-known literary figure like that praise a horror film at this point. Yeah. Uh, Especially given that, like, we haven't had great results out of Columbia Studios, um, which we mentioned. So how are we watching this film? Well, The Black Room is currently available to rent on YouTube, Google Play, and the Microsoft Store. Uh, and it's also available on DVD in the Boris Karloff collection from Sony and Mill Creek Entertainment, alongside five other Karloff films from his period with Columbia Pictures. So if you would like
0: to watch along with us, you can find The Black Room from 1935 on our YouTube playlist at our website, screamscenepodcast.tumblr.com. Watch along with us, and we'll be right back after our intermission.
1: See you on the other side, everybody. <laughs> Hello, and welcome back to Scream Scene. We just finished watching The Black Room from 1935, starring Boris Karloff and Boris Karloff. (laughs) What did you think of this movie, Sarah?
0: It was pretty good. Um, I didn't realize that Boris Karloff was playing two roles, twin brothers, and it was a real
1: treat. I thought it was really good. I thought it was shockingly good. I mean, maybe it's just because I was going in with, like, lowered expectations because of the period, but also like because of our past experience with movies from Columbia Pictures. But I was I was thoroughly impressed.
0: And also with like not ever hearing of this movie yeah. before.
1: Yeah, it's not one that I've ever like encountered or heard of. It's kind of a forgotten gem, I guess.
0: And like it's such a superb example of Boris Karloff's acting skills. Oh, for sure. That it's like, why haven't I heard of this movie?
1: Yeah, and, like, the work put in production-wise, like, feels like an A picture. There's lots of extras and period costume and period sets and towns and villages and stuff. I find the the period European setting in this movie was much more convincing than Universal's never-when Europe has ever been.
0: Maybe because we actually got a year yes. in this rather than, what year?
1: yeah. So, let's talk a bit about the plot of this movie, which is pretty intricate, really.
0: It is, but I'm going to try to sum it up in as quick detail as possible. Sure. The film opens on the noble Bergman house, as the twins Anton and Gregor are born. We're told that this is not something to be celebrated because of a prophecy in the house. This house began with twins with that particular younger twin killing the older twin in the black room. And the prophecy continues that the house will end with twins, again with younger Anton killing older Gregor. Mm-hmm. In response to people talking about this prophecy, the doctor, who is a very difficult to spot Edward Van Sloan, <laughs> adds that there's further reason that the younger brother might resent the older brother more than just the older brother getting all the titles and everything, um, it's that the younger Anton has a paralyzed right arm. Mm -hmm. To help avoid the prophecy, they seal up the Black Room. Years later, Baron Gregor invites Anton, now a scholar traveling abroad, back to Tyrell. Gregor is not popular as Baron um, for, quote, what he's done to all the women
1: who go to the castle and never, never come back. back.
0: And also, interesting to note is that while Gregor is cold and cruel, Anton is warm and cordial. Mm-hmm. So, um, kind of like complete opposites in twins
1: evil twin, good twin.
0: Exactly. Anton has his trusty dog whose name I think is Tor or mm-hmm. something like that. Yeah. I kept thinking that they were trying to say Thor. <laughs>
1: definitely tore.
0: (laughs) Um, And that's just something to mention and bring back later. To help illustrate Gregor and what he does with women, um, during the night he meets with this one servant from another household named Mashka. And it's clear that they've been having an affair for a long time. Uh, She's feeling very jealous because Gregor is like chasing other girls, um, specifically Tia, the daughter of family friend Colonel Hassel, she tells him that she knows that he knows of another entrance to the black room and that he's been loading in stuff or something, and in a rage, he kills her. That murder is kind of what puts the town over the edge. They've had enough, and they storm the castle, and Gregor explains, no, 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 don't. Don't worry. Calm down, everyone. I'm passing. Baron duties onto my brother Anton here, who you all love. And I'll I'll just leave, and you'll never hear from me again. Mm-hmm. It'll be fine.
1: And Colonel Hassel's like, oh good, I was hoping this would happen. Exactly. Except that,
0: that night, while getting ready for the transition, Gregor lures Anton into the Black Room. And this is the first time that we see the Black Room. Its walls are onyx and reflective. And there's this giant pit in the middle, um, where the first set of twins duked it out,
1: basically baroned it out. Hmm. You didn't laugh. Oh, right, because they're yeah, they wouldn't duke it out because they're not dukes, so they baron it out. Yeah, okay, I get it.
0: Thank you. (laughs) And as Gregor shows Anton the pit, he of course pushes him in, and now impersonating Anton. Gregor is able to maintain the baronship, is now considered popular by the people, and is also able to get closer to the colonel and his daughter, Tia. So much so that he asks for Tia's hand, and the colonel's like, yeah, make my daughter a baroness, that's great. But her sweetheart, Lieutenant Albert, disagrees, and they have a big argument, and he storms off. That night, it's not very clear how they got onto this topic, but the colonel has decided that Anton... He's going to sign some papers to become guardian of Tia because the colonel's old, mm-hmm. but in the process of getting Gregor as Anton to sign the papers, the colonel sees Gregor use his right hand.
1: Yeah, it's, it's a really great moment because he hands him the pen, and it's clear that like Gregor's never learned how to write with his left hand, so he tries to like distract the Colonel to get him to turn away as he signs the paper, but the Colonel manages to see him sign it through a mirror. And he
0: calls Gregor out on this, and of course he kills the Colonel, like you kind of just saw that coming, and Albert actually gets framed because of that previous argument. Mm -hmm. So Tia, now kind of alone, has Anton as a guardian and reluctantly agrees to marry him. Gregor, with all of his plans coming together, decides to, on his wedding day, go and check on Anton's dead body in the pit, just to be like,
1: yes, you are still in there. Yeah, you're dead. You're very dead. Nothing to worry about.
0: (laughs) And Anton's dog, Tor, who has, like, not been seen since um, by the audience, he's, like, apparently popped up here and there to the characters, sees... Gregor go into the black room and then starts barking at him and getting very aggressive with, like, the implication that the dog knows about the murder or something like that? Or or the implication that there's a supernatural element going on here?
1: There's certainly the implication that the dog can at least, A, tell the difference between Gregor and Anton, and earlier in the film we also see the dog always kind of protecting Anton from, like, threats Mm -hmm. or things that might threaten him. So we know that it's a very protective dog that has a very, very good sense of what has threatened his master.
0: As Gregor heads to the church to be married, Albert decides to break out of jail and appears to do it quite easily um, to see Tia one last time and also witness this marriage.
1: Well, don't they say, like... Oh, everyone in town's at the marriage, so it should be easy for you to break out of prison.
0: (laughs) Yeah, it's... come on. Just before the priest calls man and wife, the dog interrupts and attacks Anton. And as he moves both arms to defend himself, everyone realizes that Anton is actually Gregor, and we get an awesome chase scene back to the castle where Gregor is going to hide out in the Black Room before escaping. The dog follows and leads everyone into the castle to the Black Room, to the secret entrance, and goes and attacks Gregor, pushes Gregor into the pit where he falls, and Anton, who died with a knife pointing straight up, um, stabs Gregor, thus fulfilling the prophecy. Mm -hmm. The end. So that's
1: a pretty convoluted plot. But it's it's kind of amazing how tight it is in execution. Yeah, the
0: pacing is really good.
1: Yeah, it's, it's very excellently constructed because everything that you need to know is set up, you know, in advance. You have all the information you need um, at any given point. I think one of the things that works in this movie's favor is that it's not, you know, an adaptation or a remake like we said at the start. So it can kind of fit its story perfectly for the medium of film and the running time that it has you know, free from the burden of having to adapt a previous source or whatever. Like, the story can just be exactly what it needs to be, right?
0: That being said, it does feel like an adaptation, right? It's It feels strange for a movie to be this, like, complicated. It feels like it's adapting some kind of specifically gothic fiction.
1: Yeah, well, it's I, maybe that's part of, like, the the period setting and, you know, all those kind of gothic tropes, but I think you know, even though the story's convoluted, you know, it doesn't have any characters we don't need. You don't feel like there's been subplots trimmed. Like, everything that's here Mm -hmm. is there to tell the story.
0: I guess what I mean with bringing up the fact that it feels like an adaptation is, we've talked about how horror movies have this tendency to be like, no, we're adapting this Mm -hmm. legitimate source. Yes. We are a legitimate film. Yes. And this film feels like it has... It has this air of like, no, we're legitimate without actually having the tie to an actual piece of literature.
1: Yeah, totally. I think a lot of that comes from being a movie with, you know, barons and baronesses <laughs> and so on, right? That sort of false highbrowness that you can buy into when it's, you know, oh, a family squabble over a noble title or whatever. Sure.
0: Uh, Karloff is just so good in this.
1: Yeah, it's it's such a great showcase for his acting. It's technically a dual role, but he's really playing three parts, if you consider it from an acting craft point of view. Yeah. Because he has to play kindly Anton, monstrous Grigor, and then play Grigor's impersonation of Anton, which is probably the most impressive one, because it's not just a replication of what he does as Anton. You can tell it's Anton, but you can always see Grigor's eyes behind it if that makes any sense. Like, totally. It's, it's really effective.
0: It's really well done. And then the way that um, when he's sitting in the chair, when the colonel is just about to call him out on being Gregor, mm-hmm. um, and he's sitting in the chair as Anton, and then he moves to be Gregor again. Yeah. It really reminded me of when you see Christopher Reeve be Clark Kent, and then in the same scene, kind of stand up and position himself to be Superman. Yeah. You can tell it's the same guy, but it's like two different characters. It's really well done.
1: Yeah, because a big difference between Grigor and Anton is just how they hold themselves and their posture. What's smart about the movie is that the movie waits a decent amount of time before killing Anton, so that as an audience... We get to see both of them for enough time that we know what Anton's mannerisms are and we know what Grigor's mannerisms are and we get to have the fun of seeing Karloff go from one to another like that. In addition to Karloff's acting, the other thing that really makes the dual role work is how good the optical effects are.
0: Yeah, the split screening but also the very clever cutting.
1: Yeah, there's, there, the split screen is, is seamless you know, it really looks good. And I think one of the things that helps that is they, they don't do it all the time. Um, they do it kind of when they need to, and then in a lot of other shots, they do either clever angles with doubles, or like you said, they'll do um, these disguised cuts where you think it's one shot that's showing you both guys, but really they've hidden a cut into that shot somewhere so that they can flip, you know, which one's Karloff and which one's the double. And it's, it's really well done.
0: Yeah, I was very impressed, especially with a film from the
1: 30s. Yeah, and this is what I mean when I say it feels like an A picture. I mean, you have these excellent sets, costumes, um, which give this great atmosphere to the film. The lighting is really impressive, too. It's this great, shadowy, low-key lighting. Very effective deployment of the dramatic thunderstorm Yeah. at the right moments. I mean, I was impressed with the directing honestly. And maybe even doubly impressed just because I know that this is the guy who did Black Moon, which didn't really impress us all that much. You know, it was competent.
0: Yeah. Even to just compare the lighting in Black Moon, it was like, you could feel like it was a little stylized, but it didn't stand out as stylish, Mm -hmm. you know, in the same way that Mad Love in Peter Laurie's apartment. Yeah. Here, like... I mean, I feel like outside the castle it was fairly standard, but mm-hmm. like it, it still had the the feel that horror lighting should have.
1: Yes, it has it obviously in the castle. The the black room looks fantastic. They do a really good job of lighting Karloff to take advantage of his sort of unique facial structure where they can have his his eyes all in shadow if he's Grigor or whatever. Yeah. Um, but even outside the castle, like the scene I'm thinking of is where he kills the colonel and there's a moment when uh, the lieutenant, you know, says, oh, I'm going to apologize after that big row and he goes into the study where he thinks Anton and the colonel are and the lights are all off and he kind of is in shadow, you know, looking through the place and then, you know, leaves, close the door and we see that uh, Grigor has been hiding behind the door with the body the whole time and just the shadows in that whole scene, like you were saying, really had that horror movie feel.
0: Yeah, it was very well done.
1: The tension in this movie, I feel, mostly comes from dramatic irony. hmm Because it's all about what the audience knows and the characters don't. And it's really thrilling. You wait on pins and needles. You know what's likely to happen next, but you're still thrilled when it does? Yeah.
0: How do they make it that satisfying? Well, Without it feeling like painting by numbers.
1: Right. And this is something I was thinking about, because that's so different from, I feel like, what the modern, the modern shtick in Hollywood <laughs> is today. Which is, nowadays, I feel like movies and TV are really stuck on the idea of the twist. Of like, oh, you didn't see that coming. And, you know, there's... The thing about twists is they're thrilling in the moment, but you can often feel cheated afterwards you know, going, well, wait, doesn't that invalidate the whole fucking movie up to the twist then? And, you know, it's actually not as satisfying, even though in the moment you're like, holy shit, I would have never have thought... Whoa, spoilers. Okay, maybe I shouldn't say that. You know, whoa, I never would have thought that he was dead the whole time. There we go. Sorry. But instead of the thrill of the twist, which is kind of, in a way, the thrill of the rug being pulled out from under you, the Black Room shows how a well-constructed story can be just as thrilling, because we know Grigor is gonna kill Anton and take his place from the moment he suggests that Anton take the baronship. Yeah. Right? We know, oh, that's what he's gonna do. Uh, and then he does, and we also know that from the second... Colonel Hassel hands him the pen, we know, oh, he's going to have to sign it with his right, the colonel's going to see it, and he's going to have to kill the colonel. We know that from the instant we see that. And we also know from the moment we see Anton, you know, he's picked up this knife in the black room that... Grigor used to kill Mashka earlier, and then Grigor pushes him into the pit. And we know, because there's a fucking prophecy, that <laughs> eventually Grigor's gonna fall down that pit and land on Anton's knife. You know, so we know everything that's gonna happen in this movie, but we still are so engaged every step of the way because the enjoyment is not in, oh, I didn't see that coming. The enjoyment is in seeing how the pieces come together in a way that makes sense. You know, it's the enjoyment of fitting that puzzle together and seeing everything click into place. And it's, it's the joy of anticipation, too. The characters don't know what's going to happen, but you do. And so you're just sitting there on the edge of your seat because you want to be able to yell out to them like, No, you fool! <laughs> um, As I did. Yeah, you, you <laughs> know, Grigor opens up the pit in the black room and he's like, Oh, yeah, there's this pit here that, like, our ancestors have just chucked all their enemies into for years. And Anton fucking, like, leans over the pit to look down it, and the second he did, you were yelling at him, like, no, get back! He's gonna push you in! And I think that's where the joy comes from, is that that feeling of, of knowing that something's gonna happen, but not being able to do anything about it, so all you can do is just sit there and watch as it happens. I have this theory that modern day, especially modern-day Western culture people, Um, but probably this is applicable to other cultures, it just is a little bit different. But basically, I think modern-day people have story structure innately in them, basically.
0: Well, we consume stories from like, as soon as like a parent is reading a story to you into bed. So you know the beats that are supposed to come. Like you might not know it, but you feel it.
1: Exactly. And the reason why I brought up Western culture is simply because our story structure is different from other cultures. But I'm sure that that innate sense of what that structure should be is the same regardless uh, for that same reason. And because of that, I think there's a satisfaction that comes from seeing a story that makes sense. And especially in a case like The Black Room where The Black Room doesn't really follow, you know, it's not a hero's journey movie something like that where we've seen it a million times. It's not a Romeo and Juliet, it's not a Star Wars, it's not from like a, a tropey story, but the story still does have structure. So it's not something we've seen a million times, but it makes sense enough that, you know, we feel that sense of satisfaction because it, it fits what we know a story structure should be. And I think there's an inherent dissatisfaction that you get when you watch stories that try to fight uphill against that. There's no surprise here in terms of what's going to happen. It's not the what is going to happen that engages you, it's the how it's going to happen that engages you. Because this is a Hollywood movie, so the second the movie starts with some guy being like, there's a prophecy, the younger brother will kill the older, you know (laughs) that's going to happen. There's no such thing as a Hollywood movie where a prophecy doesn't come true unless they're making some big point about it not coming true. So you know that's going to be the ending, and so it's about the satisfaction of seeing how we get there.
0: It also takes this, like, I don't feel like it works as a theme, but this, like, motif of the prophecy coming true, Mm -hmm. um and the story structure that you've outlined with, like, we know what's going to happen,
1: and it's coming, and then it does happen. Yeah, well, I mean, that's that's Greek tragedy, right? Like, yeah. you know exactly what's going to happen to uh, Oedipus yeah. from second one of that play, and the, the satisfaction in Greek tragedy is that seeing it happen and knowing, you know, the reason it's a tragedy is there's nothing they can do to prevent it, right? You're just on an, an inexorable path of fate.
0: Mm-hmm. So... The Black Room is not a tragedy, obviously. No,
1: because even though like
0: it has that, I was just using that as a segue from your Greek tragedy. Yeah, thing.
1: absolutely. Grigor dies, which is a good thing. So <laughs> it's a tragedy for Grigor, I guess, but nobody likes him.
0: It's a tragedy for Anton.
1: Yeah, Come but it on. doesn't. It doesn't end there, so.
0: Yeah. Anyways, is this horror?
1: You know, I wasn't sure watching it. Same. Because it's kind of could just be period melodrama, right? It could also just
0: be thriller.
1: Yeah, these are two very different examples, but what makes this different from say, on the one hand, something like The Count of Monte Cristo, you know, a, a dark period melodrama about jealousy and revenge, mm-hmm. and then on the other hand, what makes this any different from say, Dial M for Murder, a story that's about, you know, a criminal, conducting a crime, and then you just have to wait until he gets found out and you know he's going to, right? Like that's very structured similarly to this. So, you know, thriller, period, melodrama, you know, okay. I
0: think like in between that spectrum that you're pulling, Mm -hmm. Cask of Amontillado is right in the middle. That's fair. Yeah. You know, I forget their names, but you know dudes getting put behind that wall. I can't remember. One of them's
1: Fortunato. I can't remember if Fortunato. Fortunato is... Fortunato's
0: probably the one being put in the wall because Poe loves like.
1: Oh yeah, like, it is Fortunato like because the guy who's killing him is Montresor because of the line "For the love of God, Montresor." <laughs> um, Fortunato is not very fortunate. No, which is the joke. Um,
0: <laughs> <laughs> Poe's like, finally, someone said it.
1: <laughs> so yes, I think I think you're right. That Casca of Amontillado is in the middle there. And I think Casca of Amontillado is horror. But the reason Casca of Amontelado is horror is because we have that, you know, we're kind of with Fortunato as he's getting amontilladoed into the, uh, <laughs> the dungeon, right? As, as the wall's coming up and it's this slow, inexorable build.
0: Whereas here, we would be with Montressor. We are with Gregor.
1: Yeah. You know, because the ticking clock here is the ticking clock of people finding out his wrongdoing, because he's our point of view character, like, is that still horror? Is it maybe that sub-genre of horror we've talked about where the horror isn't, you know, the innocent people and something awful happens to them, it's the punishment horror. Like, the, the, the tales from the crypt-style horror where an ironic fate befalls a, a wrongdoer. And that's what the story's about. We Like, freaks we identified that in, for example. Or is it just kind of the atmosphere and that Karloff's in it that makes it horror? Is that all it is? Right. Because there's a lot of horror atmosphere. And I think when we see Boris Karloff, you know, our minds are willing to put some things together to say, oh, this is horror.
0: Yeah. You said something with the story structure where we're sitting here watching, knowing what's going to happen while it happens. And we're scared by that. And it made me think of any kind of slasher film. Where you're like, why are you splitting up? Why are you going into that room? What are you doing? And then of course Jason's right there with the knife. Yeah. Um, but again, in that case, we are with the victims, not Jason.
1: Mm-hmm. The, the way that this movie puts you with the villain the whole way through, it has a... You know, like I said, it has that Hitchcockian thriller thing. like mm. Like Rope or Dial M for Murder, where the question, the question isn't so much, is he going to be found out and go to jail or whatever, because it's code era. He has to be. The question is, how long can he, you know, keep fooling everyone, right? That's the, the question in Rope. You know everyone's going to find that body. It's just, how long can they keep it going?
0: Yeah. In the Black Room, Gregor gets so close to his goal of, like, marrying Tia, mm-hmm. like, Priest, he calls out, does anyone have any objections? Silence. All right, you're now man and wife. (laughs) We're really bad at barking. But still, like, it gets so close so that it feels like that.
1: Whoa. whoa. I think that, you know, there's been movies in the past where we've identified the atmosphere of doom, the inexorable hand of fate, Mm. as being a key horror element in past movies um fall of the house of usher is one that comes to mind the the horror is you know the road you're on and you can't get off of it there's nothing you can do to stop what's coming and i don't know if it's so much that some part of it is your fear isn't that gregor will be found out your fear watching this movie is what if he gets away with it because he gets so close. Your fear is for Taya, your fear is for the lieutenant, your fear is for the townspeople, because he gets so close, you know, and even when Colonel Hassel figures him out, you know, then Hassel's dead, and he even manages to just easily pin that on the lieutenant, and you like Anton so much in the beginning that it's just like, no, when he like gets killed, because Of course he got killed. You idiot. Like, your brother's evil. How did you not notice?
0: He's too good for this world. It's tough.
1: It's tough. I think I think it's just over the line. To or from horror? To horror. Okay. I think if certain things weren't emphasized in the same way, and I I won't deny that how the movie's been shot, you know, how it's been lit, what the atmosphere is, the fact that it is Karloff, adds to it. You know, it's... whether something's horror or not sometimes isn't all about story structure. We put a lot of emphasis on this show about story structure, you know, are these pieces in the right places? If they're not, it's not horror. You know, that's my big argument for, ah, oh, Silence of the Lambs isn't horror, it's thriller, because blah 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 blah, these arguments about story structure. But we also say in our first episode that it's an I know it when I see it. So I won't lie and say that those superficial elements have nothing to do with what I'm saying but I do think that in the way that the story emphasizes Grigor's cruelty and emphasizes just what a monster he is and emphasizes you know how bad he is like there's other movies I can think of where some villain's gonna marry the heroine and we've got to stop him before a ticking clock runs out right but thinking on those movies like I can't think of many that actually show that guy like murdering a woman beforehand or implying that he's murdered many more and like
0: whipping a dog
1: whipping a dog like really you know killing his brother (laughs) really showing you all of the cruelty that he has in him it's just sort of implied it's like oh we know that she shouldn't marry Humperdinck because we know he's the bad guy but we don't see Humperdinck like stab someone a few times first right
0: yeah yeah I was also thinking Princess Bride.
1: <laughs> so so there's something about the way that's emphasized, along with, like I said, that atmosphere of doom. The fact that there's that prophecy there that sort of leads this, this sense of fate over things. It's not just a melodrama. We're not just watching a thriller because there's some hint with that prophecy of the supernatural. And you even brought that up with... Um, the dog. Yeah, how the dog seems... An agent of Providence.
0: Or at the very least like an agent of Anton. Sure. The other thing, I mean this isn't always the case with thrillers, but there's no hero character.
1: Yeah, that's very true. Like it's not... It's not
0: like Albert bursts in and he's like, I didn't actually kill the colonel and I can prove it. There's nothing like that.
1: Yeah, he doesn't save the day, right? Like this... It's just the dog. The thing that makes this maybe different from another period melodrama especially of this vintage, like from the 30s, is you kind of expect Albert to come in with a rapier and sword fight (laughs) Krigor at the wedding, right? Yeah. Like, that's what this would be if this was Robin Hood, but it's not Robin Hood. Mm Mm-hmm. You know, instead it's...
0: The Black Room.
1: Yes. And Grigor screws himself over. It's not even the dog if he just didn't lash out with the wrong hand when the dog attacked him, right? Yeah. Are you kind of on the same page with me, or or, or are you still having difficulties?
0: No, I'm totally with you. Um, It's funny that you mentioned the feel of something, because, yeah, in the first episode we mentioned like we know it when we see it, but we've always gone back to intent Mm -hmm. and what the fear is. Yeah. And when I was trying to think about these things with this film, I also added in feel, Mm -hmm. because with the lighting, with the feel like it's adapting a gothic novel in some way. With gothic novels known for this pleasing sort of terror, fear is really hard to nail down in this code era because all, of, like, except for maybe Bride, none of the films we've watched have had, like, a larger thematic social
1: fear to comment yeah, on. It's, it's been, be afraid of this particular specific villain because he's evil. And can be overcome right he can be overcome also like it's harder to say be afraid of x when there's rules in the code that say like you can't disparage certain groups of people like as bad as saying like ah oh, be afraid of foreigners is as a theme it's still a theme right as opposed to just be afraid of this one specific fictitious character who's dead at the end of the story like that doesn't really carry you anywhere once you get out of the movie because the devil's been defeated which is the point of the code is to not have you be disturbed for any length of time other than the running time of the film yeah but if you wanted to broaden it a little bit and i mean this is a stretch but you know this movie's about abuse of power
0: i mean that's such a general idea
1: i know that's why i said it was a stretch (laughs)
0: absolute power corrupts absolutely. Like, there's so many, like, I do feel like that's a stretch, but But I can see
1: why you would point to it. I don't necessarily mean in the absolute power corrupts absolutely sort of sense, because when I say abuse of power, I do mean something a bit more focused and specific, because, you know, this is a movie about how you can't say no to the Baron, basically, right? Like, the only thing that really toppled Grigor before this whole scheme is that he was a little bit too blatant with, I'm gonna, like, I I take women back to the castle and they're never seen again. Like, that's, you can only get away with that for so long, which is what happens to him. But the whole idea of, like, well, I'm the Baron, so I'm gonna marry Tia whether she's in love with some other guy or not. Like, even before he kills Hassel... As Anton, he still would have gotten away with that. She would have been unhappy. She would have wanted to be with the lieutenant. But it doesn't matter. Her dad would rather have her marry the Baron. That's better financial security for her. And he would have just gotten away with that. And it's it's that feeling to me, what makes Grigor horrific isn't necessarily that he's a bad person. It's that he's a bad person in power. And can abuse that power in very specific ways that you can't escape.
0: That's very true. The villagers... Talk about, like, we can't go to the police because they don't do anything. Yeah,
1: and they've pleaded to... They talk about pleading to the government, which in the socio-political context of this film would mean that, like, they've gone above the baron's head to send some plea to what would be considered in modern terms, like, the federal government, basically the emperor. Yeah. Um, and, like, there's been no help. You know, it's, it's not quite the, like, the evil emperor absolute power thing. It's more the specific power of, I have power over this group of people and I can abuse it any way I feel like, Anton could have abused it too. He just didn't.
0: He didn't have the chance. Yeah. But it's also the fickleness of power. Mm -hmm. Because if, like, the only thing standing between you having, like, a good leader and a bad leader is just, like, is the person a good person? No? You're fucked!
1: Sorry! Yeah, Yeah, because it's it's, uh, hereditary, right? So you just hope that you have a good one, I guess. Yeah. And... I think, you know, when we talk about how there's that fear that the villagers have, or the fear that Taya has that she can't escape her fate. Like, she doesn't know that it's Grigor until that dog attacks, but she's still crying on her wedding day because she's so unhappy about this situation she's been forced into. And that's when she thinks it's Anton. Like, when she thinks it's a good guy she's being forced to marry, it's still horrific for her because she has no choice in the matter.
0: Yeah. Okay. Okay. Regardless, I am happy to rank this rather than put it on the miscellaneous list.
1: For sure. Okay. Let's, uh, let's do it. Where are you thinking for ranking?
0: So I wasn't really sure where to start with ranking this film. Sure. Because it was a, I can feel that it's horror, but how do I put that into words? But why? But why? So my range is between The Mummy and Spanish Dracula.
1: 30 to 37. Okay. You're quite a bit lower than me. Okay. Um, I have a pretty wide range though as well. Your range is 7 films, mine is 10, but it's a lot higher. My floor was uh, number 21, just under Fall of the House of Usher. Because like I was talking about earlier, it felt sort of similar to me in that sense of like the hand of fate and also the the similar theme of like what the fate is is like tied to this familial lineage, right? That your family has a doom that you can't escape. If this isn't better than Fall of the House of Usher, it's not much worse. So I kind of put my floor just below that at 21. And then I kind of worked my way up, you know, okay what could this be considered better than? And I ended up at number 11, which would put it right below Murders in the Zoo. And I kind of ended up that high because I something about the nature of Grigor's cruelty, the um, very human realness of it, where he's not Dracula or Frankenstein or some other spooky supernatural villain, he's all too human, reminded me a lot of Lionel Atwell's cruelty in L- Murders in the Zoo. So I sort of ended up with a very high range that way, but being pretty comfortable with that being a range where it could go comfortably anywhere in that.
0: When I was... Trying to think about where I would rank this, I still wasn't sure whether it was horror. And since our discussion, um, I feel more comfortable going towards your range. Thinking about your range and thinking about what we've just discussed, I would probably tend towards the lower half of your
1: range. Okay, so looking around there, the lowest I had it going was below Usher, above the hands of Orlac. How do you kind of feel about that? Is that too high for you? Would you want to bring it down a bit more? Or does that make sense to you?
0: I was feeling like either above Freaks or below Usher. Okay. Freaks because we talked about the punishment horror subgenre, and Usher because of what you've brought up of, like, the prophecy of your family and being tied to that. I think... The black room does a way better job of like pacing out that kind of like prophetic march towards the end than Usher does. Yeah, I'd, I know I'd agree with really that. You really don't like Usher.
1: It's not that I really don't like it, but I do think that it's very slow paced. <laughs> it doesn't have the thrilling tension As of this film. You know, in this movie, you're like, oh, it's gonna happen, it's gonna happen, it's gonna happen. And Usher, for me, is more of a like. Yeah, get it over with, get it over with, get it over with.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I know it's going to happen when, though. Yeah. Freaks, we talk a lot about how, like, the first half, we get to know all of the people, and then the second half is when the horror actually happens. And there's, like, really good reasons for why it does that, so we can actually get to know these people. Mm -hmm. This film, it manages to balance that, get to know them, and then the middle half of, like, oh no, like all, all the terrible things he does as Anton... So in a way, the pacing is a little bit better. I feel like, though, the turn towards punishment in Freaks feels a lot more terrifying because you spent half the movie getting to know these circus folk as like, yeah, they're like people like us. And Mm -hmm. then you see them do these horrific things versus this film where it's like, yeah, you know, Gregor
1: is terrible. The central difference, you know, even though they are similar in that this movie has the, the period where we get to know Grigor and Anton, and then it switches to the horror period where Grigor's running around pretending to be Anton, and then we get the punishment. The difference is that, yes, the peasants are storming the castle, and yes, the dog kind of, you know, startles him, but no one really particular kills Grigor. Like, he stumbles back into the pit, and yes, he does fall on Anton's knife, but like, That's pretty contrived. Like, Anton didn't kill him in, like, an active participant sense. It's very much that kind of, like, Disney villain death where, like, the (laughs) villain has to die because they're bad, but no one's directly responsible for it because that would dirty the heroes too much, right? And I think you've hit the nail on the head in terms of what makes freaks scarier is that we see actively the people descend on the wrongdoers. And it's the people who we've spent the whole movie getting to like. So it's very shocking when that happens. So I think the the horror content of Freaks strikes a lot deeper than the horror content in The Black Room. Mm-hmm. But I think it also manages to do what Usher was trying to do better. And that just might be my bias for the economy of storytelling of traditional Hollywood structure versus Usher's kind of laissez-faire approach to storytelling because it's a French art film. They're
0: both intentional in the structure they are going for. Yes. In terms of what they're trying to achieve within that story structure, I think The Black Room
1: does it better. Okay, so are we kind of comfortable with this then? Is this where we're feeling good? Yeah. All right. So entering the list at number 20, The Black Room, from 1935, directed by R. William Neal.
0: If you would like to see this list, you can go to our website, screamscenepodcast.tumblr.com. There you will find links to other episodes, a list of all of the films that uh, you can watch on YouTube, as well as an appeals box where you can submit appeals, challenge the ranking of some of these films, but you can also submit questions, suggestions, um, and any concerns. If Tumblr isn't your bag, you can email us at ScreamScenePodcast at gmail.com or talk to us on Twitter at underscore ScreamScene.
1: ScreamScene updates every Wednesday on SoundCloud, iTunes, and Google Play, and you can find us through our RSS feed on pretty much any podcasting app you prefer to use. You can leave us a review and a rating on iTunes. That helps us out a lot in terms of helping people notice and see the show more. Basically, the more reviews we get, the more we get featured on iTunes. So getting that would be super helpful. Uh, Another way you can help support the show is just by telling a friend about us. If you know anyone who's into horror, classic cinema, history even, this is a good Venn diagram overlap of all of those things, I think, for people who are interested in those topics. A new way that you can help support the show is on our Patreon. Go to patreon.com slash podcast, and there you can sign up to be a patron. Patrons get thanked on the show and at $5 get access to bonus audio, uh, stuff that was cut for time, bloopers, all kinds of little extras. At the $10 level, you'll get a monthly horror short story written by yours truly. And every little bit on our Patreon goes towards helping us reach our goal of eventually doing specials on horror-adjacent movies once a month.
0: Patreon.com slash Scream Scene Podcast. What are we watching next week, Ben?
1: Well, it's a Poverty Row horror film. It's from the director of The Monster Walks and the Vampire Bat. It's called uh, Condemned to Live.
0: Yes, I love this title. I don't know anything about this movie. And this director does not have a good batting average. Track record? Sports
1: analogy? But you like the title.
0: Yeah, Condemned to Live. (laughs) Alright. We will see you next week, Creatures of the Night. Bye. Bye.